read the sermon text. Um, And how many of you remember all the details of this one from before? Uh, Never seems to get covered in uh, Sunday school with the little felt Samuel and the little felt Israelites and the little felt tabernacle. thinking about how to communicate just how bad this is and about the best thing I can come up with uh, and still speak publicly is that um, it would be a little bit like if I had come up here drunk on the communion wine and at this point uh, got up to start selling Amway and had uh, someone uh, bar the doors in the back, and then Nathaniel got out his baseball bat and said, you're going to buy some Amway. (laughs) What we have in front of us is a text that is absolutely shocking, and it's a text that's removed from us in culture quite a bit, and yet it's still shocking. If you were an Israelite reading this, it would have been mind-blowingly awful. I mentioned last time when when I was preaching that things are not going well with Israel at this point. We're a few hundred years uh, removed from the good days of Moses when things weren't really very good because the Israelites were complaining all the time and being judged and things like that. And then Joshua, and there were some good times then. And then you have the roller coaster ride of the book of Judges that gradually comes to a screeching plummet uh, where Israel is portrayed in terms that sound just like Sodom and Gomorrah with the final phrase of the book of Judges being, each man did what was right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. And Samuel picks that up. Now, last time we saw God answer the prayer of a godly woman, this time we see Samuel growing up. And uh, I'll be doing perhaps the very unexpected thing of focusing in on the very middle of the text before us and preaching a sermon on what Samuel was wearing. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, But before we get there, we have to acknowledge that there is darkness in Israel. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas were descendants of Aaron. And as such, as descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, as people of the tribe of Levi, they were qualified uh, to be priests. Except for the very, very striking, obvious uh, problem that, as the text said, they didn't know the Lord. Um, This is like uh, hearing that someone is qualified to uh, fly your plane because their dad was a pilot, uh, but they actually have never been in the air. They uh, don't know anything about planes. They've only ridden in a car before. And Hophni and Phinehas are are terrible. 1 Samuel 2.12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
This is not what you look for in a pastor. Uh, we're really looking for someone who really doesn't... You've, you've never read the Bible. Good. Okay. Um, do you know Jesus? No. Okay. Um, Hophni and Phineas are clueless, uh, or worse, they've grown up with their father as priest. They minister in the tabernacle, which is the only place you could go and worship God and offer sacrifices. Eli is getting on in years. Uh, whether he's able to or not, he doesn't stop them. Uh, he does call them out for their sin, but it doesn't stop them. And so we have the priests of Israel, the men who should be leading everybody else, who should be directing the people toward God, who should be interceding for the people in prayer, making sacrifice. We have them sleeping around in the parking lot of the tabernacle, taking what belongs to God and glutting themselves on it. It's bad enough when you hear it. If you understand the Old Testament, you realize how bad this is. Uh, This is not just that they're doing something kind of wrong or that this is a little bit of extortion. This is standing before a God who is a consuming fire and uh, ignoring him while you take what's his and abuse his people. Uh, The book of Leviticus is a tough book to get through, but one of the things that it does give us is lots and lots and lots of rules that hammer a theme that God is holy, and in order to relate to a holy God, that we as sinful people have to do certain things, and especially that the priests who really got too close to God to be comfortable or uh, really they shouldn't have been able to get that close to begin with, but there were rules that they had to, uh, to follow. And one of these rules has to do with sacrifices, and Uh, we tend to think like sacrifices, okay, they're burning animals. They thought, okay, we need to do it in a certain way. It has to be a certain kind of animal. It has to be without blemish. It has to be prepared a certain way. And in Leviticus 3.16, it says, the priest shall burn uh, the parts of the animal on the altar as food, a food offering, a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. This is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. I could go on if I had more time and read the whole passage, and it it dwells on this. You do not eat fat if you are an Israelite. You give that to God. That is God's. You can eat the rest. After you give some to God, you give some to the priests, you can take some home and you can eat that. But you don't touch the fat. You don't eat the blood. More than that, the priests were allowed to eat some of it, but after it had been sacrificed. Here, Hophni and Phinehas are coming at the people, saying, you're going to give us some of that sacrifice. Uh, We would like the filet mignon. You may sacrifice the rest. 
give us the prime rib, then you can go. And the people were saying, this is God's. And they were threatening them and taking it by force. Not only were Hophni and Phinehas in danger, and they comes through in this text that it was the Lord's will to put them to death. We'll see that later on uh, as they figure out another way to be even more evil. Uh, Here Israel is in danger. And we all, uh, you probably know the Ten Commandments. You've probably heard them uh, and spent some time with them. If you haven't spent time with the book of Deuteronomy, there's some good stuff there, particularly Deuteronomy 28 and following uh, kind of gives Israel the whole point of it. Uh, And here's what's going on in Deuteronomy. The people have broken the law of God. It took them about 40 days while Moses was gone getting the Ten Commandments. By the time he came back, they were worshiping a cow uh, that they had made that Aaron just says, oh, it just popped out of the fire, and who was I? Uh, Great story, but they have to be given the commandments again, and they have to be told, look, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, bad things are going to happen. The purpose of the law was never that they would obey the law and receive salvation. We know from from stories of Abraham and from uh, the New Testament, Romans 4, uh, salvation's always by grace through faith. But when it comes to life in the land, the Israelites had to do certain things. And if they didn't, here's a little snapshot from Deuteronomy 18, or sorry, Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 20. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you. And overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds and of your young flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. This is just a, a, about this much of this much of what follows of specifics of what will happen to Israel if they do not worship God as they're supposed to and keep his law. And here you have Two priests who should be leading Israel in doing the things that will get them blessing and bring glory to God, instead dragging the name of God through the mud and making it exceedingly difficult to worship God. And Israel is in real danger at this point of God showing up and saying, I am done. This is it. Bring on the Assyrians, bring on the Babylonians. Send them back to Egypt.
Now, one of the things we have to acknowledge is that we live in a culture that is doing its best to be this wicked. Now, I don't say this to rant on the wickedness of our culture, but rather as an acknowledgement of the times we live in. And on one hand, we look at this and we see uh, what Ecclesiastes says, that there is nothing new under the sun, that the wickedness we see in our day is nothing new. And those of you who have studied history know that uh, when you look at the Roman Empire, they were pretty wicked. When you look at the evils that were going on in uh, the British Empire, there were atrocities that were terrible. And there is a continuing theme throughout scripture and throughout history that humanity is wicked and in need of God. But in Romans 1, verse 30, there's a phrase. They invent new ways of doing evil. Romans 1, verse 32, although they knew God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. We live in those times. Uh, you watch the news for a few minutes, and you will hear someone pointing out what the Bible calls sinful, saying, good for them for being bold and standing up. We live in a time where what used to be considered filthy is now being giggled about where the movie Fifty Shades of Grey is being uh, smiled at on the news as something kind of funny, something attractive. We live in a wicked world. And again, my point is not to point at the world and say that we are better but we do live in a world that is wicked, and, and the church does have the task to call out wickedness. But it's important to also know that in calling out the wickedness of the world, we point out the need of the world. And that's something I'm going to come back to toward the end. One of the ways of looking at this is Israel is an absolute mess. And the other way is that Israel absolutely needs a savior. And so we come to my second point. My first point was darkness in Israel. The second point, a light in the darkness. Israel needed a savior. In the middle of all of this, we have a little boy named Samuel. And you might have smiled as you have this little detail that Samuel's mom makes him this cute little linen ephod and brings it every year. And you should smile. And again, that's one of those things that we look at it and we say, isn't that nice? If you were an Israelite, that popped out of the page because that's a big deal. And it reminded me as I was reading it of a scene in, in the movie version of The Return of the King, of which I have many, many opinions. Uh, some good, some bad, but at least it was made in the day when, uh, when three-and-a-half-hour movies were based on 400-page books and not three-and-a-half 
our movies based on little snippets of one book. But that's, that's another thing to rant on. But in the movie, there's this scene. And the Nazgul, these creatures that, are, that used to be men who are now spirits who have been corrupted by the power of the nine rings made by Sauron who made the one ring. And they've turned into these creatures of evil and they're now riding on these flying dragon-like lizard things that are, uh, that are absolutely ugly and frightening. And the people of Gondor who are standing against evil have ridden out and they are being overwhelmed by this supernatural evil. And things are not going well. And they are going to be wiped out. And when you see this scene, it is dark clouds, gray with some brown to kind of lighten up the scene. And it is dark. And it looks really bad. And Gandalf rides out, carrying Pippin for some inexplicable reason. Uh, He's needed in the next scene. And he rides out, and there's this one scene where it pans back. And on this side, you see a group of men on horseback with these Nazgul swooping down. And then you see little Gandalf, and he is radiant. Even before he does anything, he pops out. And you know, even if you haven't read the book, He's going to do something. It's going to be good. And as he rides, his staff begins to just shine. And at his approach, the Nazgul break off and retreat because they cannot stand his presence. If this were a movie, everything would be black and gray and dark brown. And Samuel would be standing off in the corner and he'd be glowing, dressed in his little white linen ephod. And I checked on this because I wanted to make sure I wasn't adding it in. Uh, In our text, it says he wore a, a linen ephod. The word in Hebrew translates as white linen. Here in the midst of evil, you've got a young boy who's just growing up. Uh, He doesn't know what's going on yet. Uh, In another chapter, he's going to hear a voice saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he's going to get up and be like, what's going on? Why do you keep calling me Eli? And Eli's going to say, go back to bed. I didn't call you until he figures out, this has happened three times. This is God. Um, But here, all we have in this text is Samuel, dressed in white. And we know something big is going to happen. We know that God's messenger has arrived. That we have, in contrast to men who are doing their best to uh, 
to wreck the church for their own pleasure. You have a young boy who is, with a lowercase s, a savior of Israel. Samuel is what theologians call a type of Christ. He is a prefiguring, a prototype, uh, somebody who was very much real. This isn't an allegory. This isn't just a story. Samuel was a real person. And he really did bring lowercase s salvation to Israel. When he gets older, he will bring Israel back to right worship. He will lead the armies of Israel against the Philistines, and they will win, but only for a while and not completely. One of the very clear evidences that Samuel is a a type of Christ, and this isn't just something that theologians uh, came up with on their own, uh, is also another small detail And it has to do with verse 26. And you may have caught this similarity. You may not, but let me draw your attention to it. 1 Samuel 2.26, the last verse of our text today. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Luke 2.52. This is after uh, Jesus has been pulled back from the temple after his parents said, have you seen Jesus? I think I saw him three days ago. Uh, Wasn't he with his cousins? And he was at the temple. And this is the conclusion of Luke 2. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Samuel shows up as God's tool for redemption, but he also shows up pointing to someone who will come later. Now, it's also worth saying that uh, Hophni and Phinehas' wickedness is dealt with. And it's worth saying that the wickedness of our day will be dealt with and that all wickedness will one day be called to account Second Peter 3 talks about how in the last days there, are, there will be scoffers who says, you, know, you said Jesus is coming. I don't see him. And Second Peter 3, 5 says, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's easy even for us to forget that reality um, and to get the idea that the world is evil and it's always going to be evil. Or for those who are against God to think God's not going to do anything. 
One of the messages of Samuel is God will deal with evil and he will make things right. But we also need to see that Samuel's presence in this text is a very clear sign that God is compassionate. This story could have been very different. The book of 1 Samuel could have been two chapters long. Uh, It could have started with Hophni and Phinehas and ended with the destruction of Israel. Instead, Samuel shows up, and we see that, like that scene where Gandalf shows up, God is going to do something, and it's going to be awesome. And we see that God was not done, and he was just getting started. My third point is the light of the world. As God was not done with Israel in Samuel's day, he continued. And we heard a little bit of this uh, earlier in the service, that there was a child who was born. Isaiah 9. uh, I'm just going to read parts of 1 through 7, verses 1 and 2 and 6 and 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In other words, in the old days, I punished Israel, but now I'm going to do something awesome up in Galilee. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Last week or the week before, we heard about John the Baptist who said, I'm not the light, but the true light is coming into the world. Jesus in John 8, 12 said to the people, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, one of the things we believe very strongly here at Trinity is that we are not saved because we are better than anyone else. We are saved because Jesus took on the sins of the world, that he lived a perfect life, that he was the one of whom God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus looked at us, and instead of saying, you despicable scum, get out of my sight, he said, come to me. The point of the entire Bible is that Jesus came to redeem a wicked world, to save sinners, and to bring them into his kingdom that will last forever and ever. Here in the book of Samuel, we see God at work. So too, Jesus was a savior of Israel. 
with a capital S, the Savior of Israel, the light of the world. And he came so that you and I, no matter where we come from, no matter what we did yesterday, no matter how we're going to mess up tomorrow or later this afternoon or five minutes from now, uh, he died for you. And this is something that is yours by grace as a free gift that the only requirement is that we say, have mercy on me, O God. I believe that Jesus has died for me. Um, If that's something you have questions about, please talk to me, talk to Pastor Nathaniel, talk to somebody else here at the church. If you are somebody who did that already, know that Jesus died for you and he died for a, a wicked, wicked world to make it right. But more than that, Jesus goes on, or says earlier, really, Matthew 5.13, you are the light of the world. Sorry, you are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5.13, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our command is not receive the forgiveness of God and go hide because the world is a mess and we need to get out of it. Our command is to engage the world. It doesn't mean that we participate in everything, and there are places that I'm convinced we as Christians cannot go. Uh, but there are not many. John 17, verse 15, Jesus contemplating his death, is praying for the church. It's a great place to spend time. Uh, called the high priestly prayer. And Jesus prays this in John 17, 50. My prayer is not that you take them, that is the disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Samuel's job in our text was not to leave and go live in a cave and never talk to anybody. He grew up. He became one of the great prophets of Israel. You and I are not people who can, on our own strength, stand up and say, be like me, I'm the light of the world. Uh, But Jesus says that of us. You are the light of the world. We're not the capital L light, he is, he is that light, but we reflect his light. And one of the truths is that Jesus has chosen you, if you believe in him, to go tell other, people's, tell other people about him. Doesn't mean that all of us are called to be evangelists or missionaries or uh, that the correct application is to go home and start knocking on doors. 
though there's less wrong with that than uh, sometimes I think uh, we're made to believe. Uh, but we are called to live in the world, to engage those around us, and to point people to Jesus and say, I've been saved by grace. Let me tell you about Jesus. So as we go, I want you to remember that, that first, Jesus came into a wicked world to save sinners, that we are no different, that without Jesus, we are every bit as lost as Hophni and Phinehas and the Israelites, but that Jesus did die for you, that he was your light and is our light, and that we are commanded to go, to go into the world and to speak his word and show his love to a world that needs it very, very badly. Let's pray together.